Thank you to Michael for that very warm welcome and uh, for that arresting exhortation uh, on uh, an exposition of Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 and 11. The application I'm taking away is that my wife and I uh, need to have our arguments on a Sunday morning 10 minutes earlier than we normally do. <laughs> have the reconciliation five minutes earlier than we normally do. And, uh, and then get to church on time. So thank you. That was very, very helpful. I look forward to telling Jackie we need to start our argument 10 minutes early. She will love having to get out of the house 10 minutes earlier, which will lead to another argument. But thank you. Uh, I'm going to do three lectures uh, tonight. Not, not all tonight. Uh, one tonight, two tomorrow. Uh, on uh, theology of worship. Tonight is worship in the Bible. Tomorrow, uh, worship in history, particularly in the 16th century in the Reformation. And then the third talk will be worship today. So worship in the Bible, worship in history, worship um, today. I should say, you can hear from my accent, I'm not from around here. Uh, I'm from Texas. <laughs> There's a little town in Northern Ireland called Texas. Uh, no, I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland, so hence the accent. Um, okay, so this opening lecture, uh, Worship in the Bible, I've entitled Worship on Earth as it is in Heaven. Worship on Earth as it is in Heaven. Since the beginning of time, there has been worship in heaven and on earth. Just think about what was going on in heaven after God created all things in the beginning. Seraphim were flying before God in the heavens, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Angelic creatures were flying before him, calling one to another, holy, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's the worship that was going on in heaven above after God created all things in the beginning. But think about what was also going on on earth below. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created the expansive skies. He placed the sun, moon, and stars in them to sound forth his praise across every land and sea under the heavens. Psalm 148 verse 3. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. In the beginning, God also created human beings on earth to reflect his glory and sound forth his praise across the whole earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the Lord's name was to be, be, to be praised by his image bearers. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all 
the earth. Psalm 96, verses 7 to 9. So the beginning of creation was the beginning of worship in heaven and on earth by angelic beings in the heavenly realms above and by creatures in the earthly realms below. In particular, on the earth below, God established worship with his son, Adam, on the mountain of Eden. Adam was created in the image of God. Therefore, he was like his father in heaven, like father, like son. And he was placed in a garden sanctuary of Eden as God's prophet, priest, and king to work and keep it. As son, he was to worship his father through faith and obedience. As prophet, he was to speak his father's word to God's world. As priest, he was to guard God's divine sanctuary and mediate blessing to God's world. As king, he was to rule God's world. Adam was called to worship his father through his word. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. This was Adam's call to worship. It was a call to adore and acknowledge the goodness and the greatness of God. God's goodness was seen in the invitation to eat from any tree of the garden, trees that were pleasant to the eye and good for food. God's greatness was seen in the prohibition to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a sign that God alone was God and man was to have no other gods before him. God called Adam to worship him for who he was. It was, if you like, a command to know God and enjoy him forever. This call to worship came to Adam in the context of a covenant in which life was promised to Adam and through him to all his descendants upon the condition of his personal, perfect, perpetual, entire, and exact obedience. This call to worship within a life and death bond distinguished Adam from the animal kingdom. He was not only unique as an image bearer of God's glory, different from the birds and the fish and the animals. He was also a unique creature as a heaven-bound homo liturgicus, a worshipping man, or homo adorans, an adoring man. God's call to worship within this covenant of life was expected to elicit in Adam a worshipful response of faith and obedience. He was called to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. Adam's reward for such a response was to be in fellowship with God, to enjoy a meal with God at the tree of life. He was commanded to fast from one tree in order that he could feast at another tree and thus enjoy consummate union and communion with God, to enjoy everlasting life, irreversible, unchangeable, immutable life. And so for Adam and all his descendants, a liturgy was fixed, stitched 
into the very order and fabric of human life on earth. It was a very simple liturgy. Call, response, meal. Call, response, meal. God called him to worship through his word and sacrament, the sacrament of the tree. Adam was to respond by faith and obedience to that call. And as a result, he would then have enjoyed a fellowship meal with God at the tree of life. Union and communion with God. Call, response, meal. In short, in the beginning, God established worship on Mount Eden through his son Adam, the prophet, priest, king of Eden. It was familial, covenantal communion with God through word and sacrament. The word of the covenant, the sacrament of the tree. And the liturgy was simple. Call, response, meal. But the worship of Adam soon turned to idolatry when he abandoned the call of God and instead followed the call of the serpent. He exchanged the worship of the creator for the worship of the creature. But notice how the liturgical structure for humanity remained the same. There was still a call to worship from the serpent. There was still a response from Adam in obedience to the serpent. And there was still a meal. He ate with the serpent. He ate at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The worship of the serpent became a counterfeit worship of God. In other words, the serpent presented Adam with an alternative liturgy, idolatry. And this became the liturgical disposition of all Adam's descendants. Adam and his posterity from this point forward would be inwardly bent toward an alternative liturgy, toward idolatry. Yet God is too great, too good, too glorious to forego the right, fitting, delightful adoration that is due him from his creatures, angelic and human. And so in heaven, God removed the wicked Lucifer in order to preserve a devoted and faithful angelic choir for his own praise. If you like, God began to cleanse the most holy place in heaven, even though a war would remain in the heavenly realms in the meantime. On earth, God worked to restore the worship of himself, and he did so by making a new covenant with man, the covenant of grace, so that he would save a people for himself who would worship him in spirit and truth. In Genesis 3.15, the promise of a son who would come and crush the serpent was, by implication, a promise to restore and perfect the true worship of God, which God first called Adam to in the beginning. The covenant of grace became in the context, became the context in which God would restore the worship of himself. God's first act in this new gracious arrangement was to elect Eve back onto his side with renewed affections for him and with a new enmity for the serpent. She just recently bowed down in worship of the serpent. She just recently formed an alliance with him. But now God says, I will put enmity between you 
and the woman. God elected her. She was the first elect member of the Christian church. God's second act was to clothe Adam and Eve with garments of skin, which involved an animal having to be slain. God was true to his word. On the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Well, Adam and Eve didn't die that day. And yet there was a death that day, the death of an animal. God remained just. Somebody died for the sin, and God was the justifier. Adam and Eve were declared righteous. An innocent victim died in the place of the guilty pair, and so they could remain even temporarily in the presence of God in Eden. This idea of sacrifice as a prerequisite for being in the presence of a holy God, whatever the duration, became essential for all future worship of God's chosen offspring. Indeed, for there to be a permanent restoration of God's holy people, worshipping him and communing with him in his holy temple, a future son of the woman would have to sacrifice himself to restore the worship of God. This is seen in the fact that the offspring of the woman would have to undergo the flaming sword of God's judgment on the east side of Eden. In effect, the son of the woman would have to experience a death and resurrection experience in order to lead the offspring of the woman back into the presence of God so that they could commune with God at the tree of life. The flaming sword was there to guard the way to the tree of life. Therefore, the only way back to the tree of life was to go under the sword, rise again, and walk to the tree of life. However, under that permanent arrangement, or until that permanent arrangement would be realized through the promised son, animal sacrifice would become an essential part of worship in the covenant of grace. And as redemptive history unfolds, sacrifices begin to play an important part in the lives of the chosen offspring. Noah makes sacrifices on Mount Ararat. Abraham makes a sacrifice on Mount uh, Moriah. Isaac and Jacob make sacrifices. They respond to God's call to worship by faith and obedience, offering sacrifices to God. Sacrifices become an essential part in the life of Israel, God's national typological son. Just think of the purpose of the Exodus and the worship uh, and the tabernacle at Sinai. It was so that God's son, remember Israel is called God's son in Exodus chapter 4, let my son go that he may worship me. And earlier in Exodus 3, Israel, Moses says that Israel is to leave Egypt in order to serve God, to sacrifice to him. Worship by sacrifice in the Holy of Holies reaches its climax under King Solomon, God's royal typological son. In his dedication service for the temple on Mount Zion, Solomon offers so many sheep and oxen that they cannot even be numbered. So worship by sacrifice in God's presence becomes the new norm in the covenant of grace. 
Now, I've just mentioned Israel at Sinai and Solomon at Zion. So let me pause for a moment and give you a quick summary of worship that occurred on these two other mountains by these two other sons of God. Adam is called a son of God. Israel is called a son of God. David and Solomon are also called sons of God. The Old Testament story presents three mountain peaks of worship in which God's son is called to worship. Adam is called to worship God on Mount Eden. Israel is called to worship God at Mount Sinai. And Solomon is called to worship God on Mount Zion. In each worship setting, the liturgical order is organically developed. For example, as Israel gather at Mount Sinai after being redeemed and rescued out of slavery in Egypt, a liturgy is formed that becomes the basic pattern for Israel's worship in the future. It has the basic structure of the worship of God in Eden. Do you remember the structure? Call, response, meal. Only now, at Sinai, it includes other essential elements like cleansing through sacrifice and mediated access through a prophet priest. If you look at Exodus chapter 19 through to chapter 24, we see a pattern for corporate worship with Israel at Sinai. There is, first of all, the gathering at Mount Sinai, chapter 19, verses 1 to 3a. Then there is the calling to worship by God's word, chapter 19, verses 3b to 9. Then there is cleansing through sacrifice, verses 10 to 15. Then mediated access through an appointed prophet priest, verses 16 to 25. Then there is divine communication from heaven to earth in the Ten Commandments in the Book of the Covenant Laws, chapter 20, verse 1 to chapter 24, verse 2. Then there is consecration, a promise, a response of obedience, chapter 24, verse 3. Then there is sacrifice, burnt offerings and peace offerings, verses 4 and 5. More divine communication, the covenant law is restated, verse 7. Then there is cleansing, burnt offerings and peace offerings again, verses 6 and 8. Then there is mediated access to God's presence, where Moses goes up the mountain into the presence of God with the elders. And what do they do in his presence? They have a meal, verse 11. See the general structure, call, response, meal. And notice how sacrifice and prophetic priestly intercession and divine communication is now integral to the worship of God. A similar pattern is seen in 2 Chronicles, verses five, uh, chapters 5 to 7, as Solomon gathers Israel for the dedication of the temple. Again, the key elements of sacrifice, prophetic priestly intercession, divine communication are interspersed in the general structure of call, response, meal. They gather at Mount Sion, chapter 5 of 2 Chronicles, verses 2 to 3. They are cleansed through sacrifice, verses 4 to 6. There's mediated access to God through priests, verses 7 to 10. There is praise, verses 11 to 13. The glory of God fills the temple, verse 14 
Then there is divine communication. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Then there is the prayer of intercession by Solomon. Verses 12 to 42. Then fire and glory come down from heaven. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Then there is more praise. Verse 3. Then there is more cleansing and consecration through sacrifice. Verses 4 to 7. And then there's a meal. They feast on the mountain. Verses 8 to 10. And then they are blessed and dismissed in verses 9 to 10. You see it again. Call, response, meal. And interspersed is the cleansing by sacrifice, the prophetic priestly intercession, and the divine communication. This is how the Old Testament worship service organically develops. With God's protological son Adam in Eden, with a very simple liturgy of call-response meal, then it's developed with God's national son Israel at Mount Sinai, and then with God's royal son Solomon on Mount Zion. Notice the general structure from Eden remains, call, response, meal, but neither are these new essential elements incorporated into the worship of God's people within the covenant of grace. There is gathering, there is cleansing, there is mediated access, divine communication, more cleansing and consecration. And each of these elements, if you think about it, they counter the consequence of sin. The gathering counters scattering. Scattering is a sign of sin and rebellion. Just think of the Tower of Babel. God comes down and scatters the people. Well, the gathering itself is countering the scattering. The cleansing counters the staining of sin. The mediated access counters the restricted access. Remember cherubim on the east side of Eden? The temple curtains with the cherubim stitched into them? Well, the mediated access by prophets and priests gives them access into the holy place of God. Divine communication counters the alternative calls to worship from the serpent, from the bales in the land of Israel. And consecration to God counters the rebellion and abandonment of God. These elements remain essential parts of restored worship in the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. So that's how the worship of God is established on Mount Eden with Adam and then typologically progressed at Mount Sinai with Israel and Mount Zion with Solomon. The worship that began and failed with Adam is recovered with Israel and Solomon, at least in a partially realized sense, a partially realized sense. Although imperfect in many ways, the worship of Israel and Solomon is acceptable to God because it is their response within a gracious arrangement, the covenant of grace. There is sacrifice there for sin, and so God accepts their worship. Yet the worship of God, as originally intended in Eden and recovered by Israel and Solomon, is never perfected or fully realized in the national son Israel or the royal sons of David and Solomon and their sons. As with Adam, Israel and Solomon fail to fully realize the perfected worship of God. For example, at Sinai, God's son is called to worship God. 
They respond in faith and obedience. The elders go up the mountain and enjoy a meal with God. But no sooner have they done that. No sooner have they worshipped God in spirit and truth than they commit idolatry. The golden calf. They bow down and worship the creature rather than the creator. And then they do it again at Peor in the wilderness as Israel are led into idolatry by women. Adam redivivus. That little Latin phrase, redivivus, it means to come back to life. It's as if Adam reappears on the pages of history because now God's son Israel the typological national son recapitulates the sin of the protological son, Adam, the first son. However, once Israel settles in the land, the potential for realizing permanent and perfect worship begins to emerge in the early period of the United Israel under David and then more so under Solomon. Solomon's dedication service for the temple is the high point of Israel's worship on Mount Zion, seen in 2 Chronicles chapters 5 to 7 that I mentioned earlier. The worship that was revealed in Eden, typified at Sinai, begins to be realized at Zion. And yet, no sooner has Solomon dedicated the temple in worship to God than he himself becomes corrupt led astray by his many wives into idolatry. Adam was led into idolatry by Eve. Israel were led into idolatry by women in Peor. And now here's Solomon being led into idolatry. He builds high places for Chemosh and Molech, the gods of Moab and Amnon, because those are the gods his wives worship. He builds the high places east of Jerusalem, it says. Notice the geography. And the architecture of the temple uh, facing east. It is significant that he builds them off to the east. It is again Adam Redivivus. Solomon is recapitulating Adam's sin of being led into idolatry by women. Because of Solomon's idolatry, not only does the kingdom split, but the divided nations of Israel and Judah eventually spiral themselves into an ever-deepening, irreversible idolatry, one which will eventually thrust them out of the land. In the north, in Israel, the idolatry begins with Jeroboam, who establishes two alternative worship centers, one in Bethel in the south of northern Israel and one in Dan in the north. He places in both places a golden calf to be worshipped. He builds temples in both places and he inaugurates a new priesthood to offer sacrifices in both places. Despite God's gracious provision of prophets calling Israel back from their evil ways, Israel do not listen. They follow the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. They spiral down into an ever-deepening, irreversible idolatry. And in the end, God removes them, it says, from his presence. 
just like he removed Adam from his presence. And where does he remove them to? To Assyria. And where is Syria? In the east. Under Rehoboam, Judah in the south fares no better. They provoke the Lord to jealousy with their own idolatrous worship. They build high places and pillars and asherim on every available worship spot in the land. They even institute male cult prostitution. Despite liturgical reforms under King Hezekiah and um, King Josiah, uh, Israel or Judah continues to spiral downward. Under King Manasseh, the idolatry reaches its peak of wickedness and corruption. There is some liturgical reform after him with King Josiah. Josiah repairs the temple. He makes significant liturgical reforms. And as a result, God spares Judah from going into exile in his lifetime. But in the end, it is still not enough. Under King Jehoiachin, God's wrath falls upon Judah in the form of the Babylonian invasion. Why? Because of their idolatry. And where does he remove them to? To the east, out of the presence of God. Thus the history of God's national son Israel, united or divided, is one of recapitulating Adam's idolatry. As with Adam, Israel hear an alternative call to worship, a word of invitation from the Beals and the Asherim, and they respond in faith and obedience to the created, not the creator. They feast at the altars and high places of these other gods and not at the temple of the one true God. And so as with Adam, Israel and Judah's idolatry results in exile to the east. Seventy years later, when Israel are relocated to the land and reaffirmed as God's son in covenant with him, with a fully functioning temple on Mount Zion, it soon, it soon becomes clear that the exile did not actually change Israel's heart. No sooner are they back in the land that they begin to desecrate the Sabbath. They begin to pollute the cult with blemished sacrifices. And they begin to intermarry with foreign women and are led into idolatry. The heart change that Ezekiel had foretold in exile, in which God would give them a new heart, put a new spirit in them, cause them to walk in his ways, had not yet materialized. That change would require God himself to come to his temple, says Malachi, the messenger of the covenant of grace, to purify the sons of Levi and to restore right worship in Zion. Malachi puts it like this, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. So that's the worship of God in the Old Testament, established with Adam on Mount Eden, and then typologically progressed with Israel at Mount Sinai and Solomon on Mount Zion. And while there is progress in each case, there is still failure to worship God aright. And the exile doesn't fix anything. Ezra and Nehemiah show that the main problem of idolatry remains. Well, let me just take a step back from this overview of worship in the Old Testament and make this 
general comment. The worship of God in the Old Testament develops in such a way that we are left hoping, longing for a son of God who will lead God's people in perfect worship before the one true God. We might even put it like this. We are left longing for a son of God who will, be, who will lead his wife in the true worship of God. <clears throat> that expectation is met in the coming of God's eschatological son, the son of the last days, Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, the true Israel, great David's greater son, and the one wiser than Solomon, the Prince of Peace. As God's son, Jesus fulfills and perfects the three offices of prophet, priest, and king, which were given to Adam and to Solomon and David as sons of God. At his baptism, Jesus' sonship is affirmed by his father. Behold, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. But the affirmation requires proof. And so the Spirit drives him into the wilderness where the ancient serpent is allowed to test God's Son, to see what's in his heart, to see if he loves God with heart and soul and mind and strength, to see if he will worship God alone. Jesus' victory over Satan's temptations to break his fast Notice the allusion to Adam. To test God's presence. Notice the allusion to Israel. To bow down and worship another God. Notice the allusion to Solomon. Meant that here at last, Jesus resisting those temptations, here at last in an epoch-defining moment, is a son who worships God alone with a pure heart. Here is the true prophet, priest, king that Israel has been waiting for. Here's the true son. Here is the perfect worshiper. However, while Jesus exhibited perfect worship as God's son in his life, the worship of God's people had not yet been perfected. For that to happen, a once for all sufficient sacrifice for sin was needed, as well as a perfect high priest who would enter God's presence in the Holy of Holies and then sit down permanently to intercede for his people. In the final moment of his perfect obedient life, Jesus breathed his final breath and what happened at the temple? The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying the end of the old way of worship and the beginning of a new way of worship in the real Holy of Holies above Here's how Hebrews chapter 8 puts it. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In other words, Jesus is the worship leader of his people. Seated at his Father's right hand, Jesus now conducts the worship of God in heaven with the angelic choirs 
And from there, he purifies the worship of God on earth among his churches. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The writer to the Hebrews goes on to capture the significance of this worship-defining moment in redemptive history. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. How is it that we can approach him? This consuming fire with pure hearts and clean consciences? Because Jesus, the worship leader, is seated in heaven, conducting the worship of angels and purifying the worship of his church on earth. And so we are now able to hear God's call to worship without being terrified by his voice. We're now able to assemble around the heavenly Mount Zion without the fear of being consumed by the blazing fire of his presence. As John Newton put it so well, Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. So through his ministry in the Holy of Holies above, Jesus, God's eschatological son, the son of the last days, has inaugurated, finally, in the history of the world, the perfected worship of God on earth. As a result, our worship is purified and perfected in God's sight in a way that the worship of Old Testament saints was not. But our worship is still only partial. It is still not yet fully realized in its glorified, consummate form in the new heavens and the new earth. 
Yes, our worship is fully acceptable to God, but it is still done with many weaknesses and imperfections. Yes, we worship now with weakness and imperfection down here, but one day we will worship up there perfectly where righteousness dwells. For now, as justified sons in the Son, we worship by faith, but then as glorified sons in the Son, we will worship by sight. What that worship will look like then was partially revealed in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, then typified again at Sinai and Zion. But the fullest glimpse of that heavenly worship is given to us in John's vision in the book of Revelation. The fact that the word worship is concentrated more in Revelation than in any other book 24 times. And the fact that John receives his vision while he is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day sets the liturgical tone for the book of Revelation. Christ is presented to us as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the first and the last, the living one who is dead, but now is alive forevermore. And as the risen Christ, he walks among his gathered churches, the seven lampstands, calling them to repentance for their sins. And then he is invited up into the throne room of heaven to see God seated on his throne in all his glory. The manifestation of his greatness recalls the theophany at Sinai with, with lightning and thunder and fire. God is worshipped there in heaven by angelic creatures who surround his throne and worship him for who he is in himself. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Twenty-four angelic elders also worship him for who he is as creator, casting their crowns before him, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But the praise of heaven is not just reserved for God. It is also given to the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain for his provision of a sin offering. The 24 elders fall down before the Lamb as well as God, and they sing a song, a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. These 24 elders are accompanied by innumerable angels saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then the angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven and earth join together. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
this symphony of praise for God's work in creation. Worthy are you. And for the Lamb's work in redemption. Worthy are you. They follow the call to worship and the call to repentance at the beginning of the book. Then there is a recurring cycle of divine communication, God's word and human response, prayer and praise, punctuated with fire consuming the sacrifices or glory filling the temple from chapter 6 through to chapter 19. The cycle is centered on the reading and proclamation of God's word in the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, the seven bowls. And then it climaxes with the fall of Satan's kingdom seen in the fall of Babylon. The covenantal blessings and curses for worshiper and idolater respectively result in two meals, two suppers, the marriage supper of the lamb for the saints and the great supper of God for the sinners. As with worship in the Old Testament, the worship of God here in Revelation climaxes in communion with God over a meal, followed by an announcement of blessing for those who have worshipped God aright. Faithful worshippers will receive the blessing of the new creation in which the dwelling of God will be with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. As Bernard of Cluny put it, Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed. Beneath your contemplation sink heart and voice oppressed. I know not, oh I know not, what joys await us there, what radiancy of glory, what bliss beyond compare. O oh, sweet and blessed country, the home of God's elect, O oh, sweet and blessed country that eager hearts expect. In mercy, Jesus, bring us to that dear land of rest who are with God the Father and Spirit ever blessed. In the consummated worship of that sweet and blessed country, the same general elements and structure of worship at Sinai and Zion are present. If you look at the book of Revelation as a whole, you get the same general structure that is there at Sinai and Zion. You get the gathering of God's people around the risen Christ, Revelation chapter 1 and 3 to 3. You get the call to worship on earth and in heaven, chapters 2 to 4. You get confession and repentance of sin exposed in Christ's churches, chapters 2 to 3 and chapter 5. You get cleansing through the Lamb who was slain, chapter 5, verses 5 to 7. You have mediated access through the Lamb who opens the scrolls before God, chapter 5, verse 8. You have praised by angels and the whole of creation, chapter 5, verses 9 to 14. You have divine communication. God's word is open and proclaimed in all the earth, from chapters 6 to 9. And you have punctuated responses of prayer and praise and the fire and glory of God filling the temple. And then it ends in chapter 19 with a meal and then the benediction of chapters 21 and 22. At a, micro, at a macro level, the basic structure of worship in Eden is still there, call, response, meal. 
And so too are the new elements that were introduced in the covenant of grace, gathering, cleansing, mediated access, divine communication, consecration, benediction. Thus the worship that was established in Eden and progressively typified at Sinai and Zion is perfected and realized in the heavenly Jerusalem. The three mountain peaks of worship in redemptive history find their complete perfection and ultimate realization in the Mount Zion above, the heavenly Jerusalem, where Christ is seated and reigning and where the nations are gathered and singing. The question is, what are we to do in the meantime until we ourselves, through death or in the return of Christ, are caught up into that worship service in heaven. What are we to do in the meantime? Well, the mission of the church, Christ's bride, is worship and witness. To worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to witness to a lost world of what God has done in Christ as Redeemer, as Creator and Redeemer, and what He will do in Christ as Consummator of all things. In other words, the church is called to worship God on earth as he is worshipped in heaven and to invite the nations to join in. This is first prefigured in the life of Christ. At his birth, the Magi come. Notice where they come from. The east. They come from the east to worship Christ. It's also seen in Jesus's interactions with the Samaritan woman at the well, where Jesus calls her to worship God in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. Jesus is not led astray by her into her corrupt worship. She, uh, he leads her into true worship. But the universal call for all the nations to come and worship the Father through his Son in his spirit is not issued until Christ's ascension to his Father's right hand. Only once Christ is seated is the Holy Spirit sent into the world to call sinners from every nation to renounce their idolatrous worship, to turn from idols to serve the true and living God, and to worship him as Father through the Son in the Spirit. That call to worship has been, going, has been going out from Jerusalem since the Apostle Peter preached his first sermon at Pentecost. Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover Sabbath. If you remember your times tables, that means Pentecost was on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Seven weeks passed, 49 days, and the Sabbath came. And on the next day, on the Lord's Day, the day when Jesus rose from the dead, Peter called the Jews to come and worship. That's why John is found on the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day in the Spirit. And that call to worship that Peter announced in Pentecost to come and honor God's servant and son, Jesus Christ. That call has been, going out, has been going out to the ends of the earth since the apostle Paul began preaching to the Gentiles 
in Acts 13. One day, this aspect of the church's mission, the witnessing in the world, will cease, but her worship in the world to come will not cease. In the future, new heavens and new earth, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, will stand before the throne and they will say, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They will fall down on their faces and they will say, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The story of human history from beginning to end is the story of worship. This is because God has so structured his world that every person will worship through one of two men, Adam or Jesus Christ. The first man, Adam, was made homo liturgicus, a worshipping man, and everyone bearing his image as inherited his fallen liturgical orientation toward idolatry. We are born worshipping the creature, not the creator. We live our lives seeking salvation and satisfaction in pseudo-redeemers, not the redeemer. We are a restless race wandering east of Eden, away from the divine sanctuary. But through the second man, Jesus Christ, the second and last Adam, we have the invitation to return to God and worship him in spirit and truth in his presence. Through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the true homo liturgicus, the true homo adorans, the true worshiping man, the true adoring man, we have a way back to God. He went under the flaming sword and then he rose again and got us to the tree of life. Since the first son of God, Adam, through the national son of God, Israel, and the royal son of God, Solomon, to the final son of God, Jesus, and now the redeemed sons of God, the church, God has been seeking a people to worship him. We are called to worship. Our hearts are restless, as Augustine said, until we find our rest in him, until we respond to that call to worship by faith and obedience and come and feast on Christ. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The consummate experience of that truth must await the final day when we will feast on and with the glorified Son of God himself at the wedding supper of the Lamb. But for now, it is right, fitting, and delightful to worship God as his redeemed people by faith. Then it will be right, fitting, and delightful to do so by sight. It is why worship matters now, because it will matter then forever. And so as we gather each Lord's Day between the now and the not yet of God's kingdom, let us worship God for who he is as one eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for what he has done in creation and redemption, and for what he will do 
in the coming consummation. Brothers and sisters, each Lord's Day, let us worship God on earth as he is worshipped in heaven. Amen.